Hey friends, this is Kate, the founder and creative director of Loam, and today we'll be exploring decolonizing creativity and the necessity of imagination with the one and only Michael Estrada. Michael's been a contributor to Loam for several years, and we continue to be moved by how he catalyzes his multidisciplinary work at the intersections of environmental justice, media, and social imagination to illuminate the experiences of Black and Indigenous people of color in the environmental movement. Michael is a true force of nature who's worked in habitat restoration throughout Golden Gate Park and is a freelance photographer for outdoor adventure brands. He's a first-generation Salvadoran-American artist and activist and storyteller, and I'm really excited for you all to connect. Michael, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was super exciting. So your interdisciplinary work speaks to so many issues we're wrestling with right now, from lack of representation and BIPOC in mainstream media to embodied climate grief across communities. More and more, you're sharing on the necessity of imagination in the environmental justice movement and how the right to imagine is being threatened by the white supremacist status quo. In a world that values only a handful of ways of being, of dreaming, and of doing, you're really striving to challenge that. Can you talk to how imagination is being manipulated right now and what it will take to decolonize creativity? Yeah, in terms of imagination being manipulated, I think that's been the status quo, uh, which is really hard to unlearn when you consider that our ma- imagination has been manipulated and it continues to be. Um, and that like framework is the bottom, I don't know if it's the bottom line, but it's the status quo that we've lived in. Um, and the work that I've been trying to do through the lens of imagination politics or imagination privilege is just the idea that some folks, mainly white cis male folks, have the highest amount of imagination privilege, um, which essentially means that when you create or when you think of something or when you design something, your work will be taken more seriously. It'll be validated. Your experiences are already validated. And on the flip side of that, um, it also shows that like with brown and black folks, because our credibility, our humanity, um, our basic rights are always under threat and under assault, uh, it takes a lot more for our ideas and our imaginations to take hold and actually influence the world. Um, And with that said, with our imaginations being manipulated, because there's really only been one framework or one lens uh, speaking in photography terms, like one lens that has really been shaping how we think, are all of our imaginations have been colonized by this one framework, essentially, like white men dictating how we see things, how we should perceive things, what's considered good, what's considered not good, who's considered human and who isn't. Um, and especially within this environmental movement, it's important because for so long, for generations and throughout history, it's been black and brown people who have led the stewardship of Mother Earth. But because of essentially whitewashing of history and the erasure of our own histories, that whole imagination around who belongs to the environment, who takes care of the environment, um, has been wiped away. So I think imagination, like to me, it's super fascinating. It's also really scary. Um, but it is fascinating in the sense that like, this is the one thing that we can all kind of rally around of like, whatever field you're in, there is an imagination in that field and a way of thinking that's dominated. So like, how can we, like you mentioned, decolonizing creativity, like how can we decolonize those different frameworks and think, what are other ways that have existed of being, of knowing, of interacting with one another 
outside of this dominant framework that's largely centered around white supremacy, settler colonialism, um, and yeah, just the devaluation and dehumanization of black and black bodies and minds. And so when we think about decentering the status quo, what can we do to actively create spaces for diverse imaginations to take root in our work? Right. Um, I think a lot of my work, people ask me this question because I think folks are beginning, or I should say, I think white folks who have power are starting to question why they have that power and what they can do to uh, essentially give up, hopefully, some of that power. And one of the ways I see that is crucial to eliminating this one way of being, one way of knowing, is essentially, yeah, like having more voices, having more imaginations put to the forefront of all of these issues. Um, so one framework is this idea of impacted storytelling. So the idea is, comes off of the idea of impacted leadership, which is that communities who are impacted by an issue should be the ones leading that the solutions to that issue because they know best for themselves. And the same thing goes with impacted storytelling, that if you represent that community, then you are the best storyteller for your own community. And essentially what tends to happen is that because we've lived under this one dominant imagination that said we are the most objective and apt imagination to tell these stories, we've always had our own stories taken away, um, whether that's in the news and journalism, whether it's in um, you know outdoor or adventure stories. We're always like exploited either in our thoughts or in our stories. So with impact of storytelling, the idea is that when we are telling stories, like who is the storyteller behind the lens, right? Like not just a person in front of the story, which is also really important in changing that framework and that imagination of what we live in, but like who is the person behind it? Because it's not enough to have representation in front of the lens. It's also important that we look at who is telling the story and who is dictating um, what that story comes out to be like, because I think most of our stories that we tell ourselves aren't this like investigative journalism kind of thing where we're trying to cover like some misdeed of some kind. The ones that the stories that really affect us and that inform who we are are the stories that can be told from a way that is just, a way that is from love, done out of love. Um, and yeah, like really brings in the community instead. And for so long, like, even when our stories are told, a lot of times like it's told in the wrong way. I mean, there's multiple examples of this, even in the past couple of weeks, um, where our stories are told the wrong way, right? Because it's not, those storytellers aren't coming from that community. So they don't feel that love. They don't feel that affection for the community whose story they're telling. Um, yeah, so it's like focusing on bringing representation in front of the lens, but also behind. Like we really need to focus on bringing and uplifting more creators and supporting more artists and supporting more storytellers of color or of different intersectional identities because for so long it's like and still today like it's still dominated by essentially like white men like you through journalism if we look at that one field like over 80 percent of it is still white and like if you get into like the other 20 percent it's like oh 20 percent isn't that bad of like the other folks who like don't identify as white but that becomes smaller, right? So if you look like at indigenous journalists, the number is like less than a percentage. It's like 0.36%. So it's like even less than a percentage. So if you look at those individually, like 
think about like who's informing our news and who's who's creating these stories and how they're creating these stories, how they're framing something. I think who is telling the story and who has the right to is such an important and dynamic question. And one of the reasons I feel that the Loam community resonates so deeply with your work and is also one of the reasons I really admire you for creating small mini grants, as it were, to gift to storytellers so that they can tell stories from their community with love and compassion. So can you talk a little bit more about the mini grant program you've been developing and how you seeded that idea and why it's so important to putting the power to tell stories back into the hands of the people? My greatest inspiration with the microgrants was essentially to get money into the hands and the pockets of black and brown creators. The reason for this is because when I see different grants processes or different nonprofits or different models that, that exist to fund artists, there's always some kind of quid pro quo of like, you have to fit these standards or these narratives, or you have to give something back to the foundation, or there is some kind of exchange that happens, which of course is seems like a fair thing. But what happens oftentimes is that those folks who are really pushing uh, the narrative forward or who are being a bit more radical than these funders would like aren't being supported and they aren't being trusted with money, even if it's not necessarily like they don't need money, you know, to buy equipment. They just need money to support themselves to do the research. So the idea with the microgrants was, okay, like I have a small platform. Um, what can I do to raise money and essentially get money into the hands of these creators? So with the microgrants, my idea was to form a model where it could be a very open and trusting model, which doesn't really exist in our society, where we could go, okay, what is it that the artist actually needs? Do they need art materials? Do they just need help with paying their rent so they can continue doing their research or continue developing the writing? And really trusting that the folks who were applying are being honest and sincere with what they're doing. Now, I think if you were to scale it and have like bigger amounts, and there would probably be more of a vetting process to see where the money is going. Um, because, But because the amount is so small, I think, and because I think the folks who are applying, at least through the applications, are very genuine and honest with where they're coming from. It really is this beautiful model of like, okay, we raised money, here's the grant money, and hopefully it supports you in the way that you need to be supported. And I think... For artists, that's revolutionary. Like so much time, like we have to produce something. There has to be an outcome, immediate outcome. And especially with social media, it requires that you have this immediate outcome, this immediate product that you can show. But a lot of times, like a lot of this work, a lot of this like activism work and social justice work, like it takes time to develop. These frameworks take time to develop. These ideas take time to develop. And sometimes folks just need that support. Um, so hopefully with the microgans, I guess it gets bigger and bigger and maybe, you know, develops into something else or something a little bit more established, which I don't even know if I want because I like that it's so grassroots and all of the money goes to them. Like there's no money that goes to me or the volunteers who help review the uh, applications. Yeah. I just hope that at least like maybe it'll inform other folks who are trying to do something similar or also want to start something in their community to support artists. Cause it's really not super hard. And, um, yeah, I've seen um, there was a professor who reached out from Stanford who was like, oh, like I, I somehow found out about your grants and wanted to know of like what the inspiration was. And uh, they're writing a book on philanthropy and I never considered it as philanthropy, but 
it's so cool to think like, okay, like this is work that can be modeled and this is work that can change essentially how, you know, grant funding has, has worked, you know, in this one way. So it's another way of like, uh, decentering one way of doing things and looking at frameworks that are more community-based. Absolutely. And I think what's so inspiring about it is you're not waiting for permission to create this program. You're responding to a need in a way that feels nourishing for you and for your community. And I really love and want to talk more about what you just shared about timeline and the need to have greater spaciousness in our timeline whether that's giving us the time to really think into our frameworks or feel into what practices feel right for the work we want to do. Because I think so much of what we're talking about does relate to time and the limits that we create surrounding time. So how is kind of expanding our understanding of time part of this process of decolonizing creativity by really giving artists and activists the space to be present to their work and to be present to its own timeline that might not sync up with a capitalist timeline. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned it there. I think so much of the world that we live in is based on producing as fast as possible. And a lot of the problems that exist now, it's like everything is because we've tried to do things as fast as possible. It's like, how can we produce meat as fast as possible? How can we get to point A to point B as fast as possible? Um, And this is like the framework that we live in, like the faster that you can produce and the faster that you can create. um, Society tells us and capitalism tells us like you will be the most rewarded. And I think with artists in particular, because like, especially living in this capitalist framework, it's really hard to think like, how can I exist and how can I succeed? And getting my imaginations out there so other folks can see differently. How can I do so under this framework? And I think it gets really exhausting in being a creator under this framework because our livelihood is so attached to what we're creating. And the more we create, like some of the most like prolific folks on social media, I think are the ones who get the most attention, of course, because they can create super fast. And I think that's a beautiful way if you can do it. But I think more and more... Um, there needs to be some kind of either conversation or movement on decelerating what that looks like for creativity of being like, okay, like how can I create this more intentionally? How can I slow down? Um, and really think about what is this for and who is it for? Because I think like for myself, that's when my biggest stress comes out in. It's like, oh, I need to produce more. or I need to get this out immediately or I need to do this immediately. Like, my brain simply doesn't think that way. Like I take a lot of time to process something. And usually like the way I work is, okay, like I want to create something, for example, like for the next issue of Loam, like the thing I'm working on, it's like, okay, like I want to create something. But for me, my process is I'm going to, you know, go swimming. I'm going to go biking. I'm going to go to a coffee shop. I'm going to read some other things. I'm going to think about it for a super long time while doing other things. And then I do it. Um, I'm not like someone who can just like immediately create. I have to like ponder about it and then like it comes out all at once kind of thing. So there's a beauty in thinking about, okay, well, if we recognize that urgency is what got us into this problem in the first place, which that doesn't come from my head. I got that from Adrian Marie Brown. Um, but if you think about, yeah, like urgency is what got us into this problem in the first place. And as creators, you have to also find models of slowing down in our process to think, 
how is this healthy for me and how is this healthy for my community? Is there ways that I can be creative while still being not just kind to myself, but kind to my community? So I'm not saying like, go isolate yourself and, you know, spend three months away because that's also a huge privilege. But how can you like be creative and how you're decelerating and how you're centering yourself and your community while you're creating? That resonated with me so deeply because I'm, I also work that way. I need a lot of fallow time before I can be creative. And listening to you was personally such a beautiful reminder that, you know, right now we've been really working hard to make our community center Loam Home happen. Um, but it just needs a softer timeline. You know, we're so excited to get growing and sharing. And as we get into the work of looking for a space and cultivating collaborations, we've been really reminded of what you just so beautifully articulated, which is the need to have a more spacious, you know, softer, slower timeline. So thank you so much for everything you just said, because it was like exactly what I needed to hear in this moment. Um, and in going off of that, something that I want to hear from you too about is how as creators, we can support other creators in their work in finding their own imagination and forging their own timeline. Uh, because I think it's so important that as artists, we really show up for artists in fields that are different than ours with a shared commitment for their growth. So what does it look like as an artist, as an activist, to really show up for and support other artists and activists? Yeah, I think one, sharing resources, sharing contacts, sharing information, that's like the most simple way because I think sometimes like some of these uh, institutions can be so heavily guarded that it's just hard to get in. Um, so when you can share, yeah, even like a contact uh, number or an email and then follow up with that contact to be like, hey, I'm introducing you to so-and-so, um, it'd be great if you two met. So then that way that contact is solidified. I think in the creator space, that's like a huge, uh, a huge benefit when you can create that community and kind of bridge those, not bridge those gaps, but maybe open those doors. That would be more apt. Um, and then in terms of like something more minor, like I think just sharing each other's work. Uh, I think that's one thing I appreciate about Loam, especially is that Loam is focused on centering the work and thoughts of others and serving as a platform to other people's thoughts. Like that's one of the most beautiful things that I think can be done. Um, and I think like for myself, like a lot of the work that I do um, is about other people. And like, that's one way that like, I like to create stuff that sometimes for myself, but I also in my work like to center other folks and their stories. Um, so like as a creator, you can do the same. Like you can do work that's maybe more focused on something that you would like to create, but then you can also have a project that's collaborative and brings in new people and then amplifies their voices. Um, creators, I think, have a tendency to look inward when they create, but there's a lot of inspiration that can happen when you begin to collaborate or bring to bring in uh, new people and in ways that you might have, might have not expected. Like even with the micro-grant program that I started, at first it was just me reviewing the applications with my partner. And then I was like, wait a second, like this is supposed to be super community-based. So I asked a couple folks who I know, two people who I just knew online and two people who I know in person, um, if they would be willing to be on the selection panel and like create that community space with me and have that collaborative um, opportunity. And in doing so, like it 
gives them something to that they can talk about if they choose to want to talk about. Um, if they ever want to do like other grant processes, like they have this that they can refer to. And like, I also get to shout them out on Instagram. So like, it's like a very simple, but then it's also like, there are tons of ways to bring other people in, even in the, something that seems like you couldn't bring someone in. So yeah, I would say collaborate, um, share each other's work and explore each other's resources. See what one person has that you can maybe share with another person, etc. I wholeheartedly love all of that. And looking forward, um, as we're at the start of a new year, what creative collaborations are you currently nurturing and that you would like to share with the Loam community? Totally. Um, the biggest thing that I haven't really mentioned on social media yet or in any way, um, but I'm working on in the behind the scenes is um, I want to, or I'm going to start, or I am starting, I'm not sure which what best tense it would be in for right now. Um, but I'm starting a publishing company or a publishing arm to Bin Media. So what that means is that um, I essentially realized that I really like print material and I want to see more of that happen. And I, of course, want to publish my own stuff in the future and maybe will, but this is more centered around publishing the work of other artists and other creatives. Uh, and how I got inspired to do this um, was essentially one, like I realized like, Anytime that I'm looking for inspiration or anytime that I'm just kind of laying around the house, like I always go to books or magazines or journals to just read and kind of see how other people are thinking. And then I realized that like a lot of the times when I was going to magazines or going to journals specifically, a lot of it is still, I mean, publishing is still also like super white dominated and we needed new frameworks, kind of like with the microgrants, like we need new models that exist that support black and brown writers or creatives or artists or photographers to creating their own media. So my idea with this project is, yeah, essentially serve as like a small publishing press and take in submissions from folks. Right now I'm working or I'm working with two folks to hopefully uh, get their material out. I'm not going to mention who they are because we're still in the planning stages, but yeah, like we're working on making two to text print stuff, uh, a reality by the end of the year. And then hopefully in the future, like we'll take submissions. And then my kind of role is to act like a, any other publisher would, or just like designing, helping uh, promote the work, helping market the book. But yeah, it, for me on my end, it's like one way that I get to create in a different capacity, but it's also like a way to like collaborate with folks who like are doing super dope work, but maybe, yeah, like these publishers and these publishing companies, like some of them, like these processes are so lengthy and so time consuming that it's like, sometimes like you want to just like get your work out there. So the idea of this model is like, yeah, we'll fund the, we'll fund the production of the book or whatever journal it is or whatever it is that we want to make and make it a reality. So I'm really excited about it. Um, yeah, I'm super stoked on it. I am so excited about that. One, because you have the most beautiful design eye. Um, and two, because I just want to see more print in the world. I love connecting to stories on social media, but print is powerful. So I'm really excited uh, for that. Well, I want to thank you, Michael, so much uh, for sharing with us today and for all the incredible work that you do. Uh, and to our Loam readers, Michael is going to be in the next issue of Loam, which is really exciting. Uh, I want to thank Isaac Silk as well for editing our podcast, uh, Isaac and Faith Harding for intro music, and to all of our Loam listeners, 
Thank you so much for tuning in and sharing your thoughts with us. It really does mean the world. Well, thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate it.